Is this not on? Or? Well, that's not on. To one of these, oh, there we go. It oh, says yeah. live. Go ahead. There we go. <laughs> Just basket, or surround, or contain, or mud. Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment. I believe in your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good. What you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the tough, though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Heart, heart. Their hearts are calloused and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted, so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Good my, stuff there. My verse seven. 70 says their heart is as fat as grease. As fat as grease. And grease really isn't fat. That's not a good translation. I, I, I've never appreciated those words. Yeah, no, it's, it is weird. Their heart is as fat as grease. Anyway, we got a prayer request. I haven't had a computer all week, so I don't have any prayer requests to give you except for Carrie, who's not doing well. She's in the hospital, had another surgery, and she, now she's got sepsis. So we want to pray for her and uh, anybody else that has troubles that... Uh, I didn't read about or know about. On, yeah, know about. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to pray to you for the need of Carrie and for anybody else that has a need that uh, is struggling. And It could be anything, not just physical. We could have financial troubles or mental troubles or troubles at home or troubles at work, whatever, Lord. You know those things and you know that they rob us of our joy and they take away our sleep and they keep us from having a close and intimate fellowship with you, even though it shouldn't be that way. We're constrained by these bodies and they sure are limited, Lord. So just search us out and help us to make the uh, jump into your presence and to uh, your kind hand of healing and blessing. And uh, should you refrain from that and the affliction stay, we would pray for just enough strength to go ahead and praise you and to be able to do that with joy. And I know with that, you'll be satisfied. Lord, we thank you for this uh, chance to get into 1 Corinthians 15, this wonderful chapter, and we just ask that you bless our time together, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. You might want to back up a little. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we'll go to 12. 12. You're not going to read any history thing? I, no, I, we're gonna, I, I just, I'm too tired to try to read that small font right oh, now. Right. I, I've had the longest since Sunday afternoon. I am just way way behind in life so, yeah but if it is preached that christ has been raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised hmm. and if christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith <clears throat> more than that we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that has raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if in your sin, and, and your faith is futile, and, and, you, and you are still in your sin, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 19. If... Only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. That's a fact. This one says basically the same thing in this life of only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Let's see here. In the preceding verse, which was 
last week, a list of reasons was noted concerning our sad state if Christ is not in fact risen. This verse completes Paul's list. Taken together, his seven reasons are, one, the preaching of the gospel is empty. Two, the faith of the believer is also empty. Hello, Miss Garrett. You're only five, eight minutes late today. Um, let's see here. Three, the apostles are actually found to be false witnesses of God. Four, the believer's faith is futile. Five, all remain in bondage to their sins. Six, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And seven, we are of all the most pitiable. Many scholars believe that Paul's words in this final consequence are directed to the apostles only and not to believers in general. Okay, because he's saying if in this life uh, we only have hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable. He's speaking about the apostles. That's what some scholars say. However, when looking at the list as a whole, it's quite clear that this is not the case. He makes no distinction between the apostles and the believers unless it is otherwise noted. Uh, let's see here. Further, he moved his thoughts from the apostles to all believers by consequence number four. Thus, that is a bad analysis. Rather, this final consequence applies to all who have put their faith in Christ. The reason for this is that as believers, we are asked to not only hope in the future to come, which admittedly is something many other religions do, but to also live a life worthy of that calling now. In other words, most people expect that they will go to heaven, even without Jesus. I could give you an example of Elijah Cummings, who died today. He's aborted, been responsible for the death of literally tens of millions of babies, along with the other Democrats in this nation. Okay, He kicked the bucket, and I highly doubt that he had any knowledge of Jesus Christ at all. His father was a Baptist. Doesn't make any difference no, no, to me at all. There is a chance. If he's saved, he's saved, and that's all there is to it. Salvation is eternal. You cannot lose your salvation. But um, my guess is that with that type of an attitude, he probably never knew the Lord in the first place because who would want to be on that side of life and do the things that he did and you know get wealthy off of people? But that's not for me to decide. I'm just making a point that uh, uh, his actions did not in any way uh, match the, uh, the calling of a Christian. He probably but had a brain transplant. He may have had a brain transplant. That's happened to me a couple times. <laughs> anyway, um, let's see here. Further, he moved his thoughts, as I said, from the apostles to all believer, believers by consequence four. So it's a bad analysis. The reason for this is that as believers, we are not asked not only to hope in the future to come, and as I said, many other religions do hope for the same thing, a life after this one, but also we are asked to live a life worthy of that calling now. And so this can't be what Paul is speaking of. Further, most religions also teach to do good works in order to have the balances tip in their favor in hopes of heaven. As a matter of fact, all religions do. It all comes down to self. All religions on this planet, with one exception, which is biblical Christianity, my hope is in Christ, okay? Other than that, every religion in one way or another comes down to works. And a lot of Christians, uh, professing Christians do as well. I had somebody email me one time about um, uh, salvation is eternal. And here's the way he did it. Okay. He is said, no, he's asking, is salvation eternal? I'm confused because I've read lots of commentaries and, uh, you know, I just don't know what to believe on this. And so I spent my morning, you know, it's early in the morning. I've got things to do. And I spent probably 20 minutes typing up an email with a response. And I said, Logically, just logically, we know that God can't lie. 
Okay, we know that God doesn't change. And he gave him all the logical reasons. I said from the Bible, there's nothing ever that says you can lose your salvation. And all of the verses point to eternal salvation. Okay, and I said, um, so that's the answer. That's the only thing he asked was about is salvation eternal or not. And then he came back and he said, um, oh, that means I can smoke pot and I can do whatever I want. And I realized I'm being trolled. This person didn't care at all whether... He obviously went to my website because it was an email through my website, and he didn't care at all about knowing the doctrine. All he wanted to do was trap me into making a stand for eternal salvation and then trying to show me the illogic of it because now I can do whatever I want and I stay saved. And I said, well, that's contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible calls us to holiness. It doesn't mean that we're going to be holy and nobody can claim that they're being holy. But I said, if you believe you can lose your salvation, then you're the one that better be questioning your salvation right now because you have come deceitfully to me. You've wasted my time, which is very valuable to me. You've started with a pretext or a lie in order to make your case. And therefore, you better question your salvation because you believe you can lose it. You see the, see the logic there? I mean, this guy was, I hate to say it, but he was adult, maybe a subdult. You know, he's he's coming at something, trying to trap me, and he's from his position, which isn't even tenable by the actions which he has taken. So I have no problem calling him adult. That's what he is. And some people got some looks on their faces there. I don't care. He's adult. Anyway, um, it can't be what Paul is speaking of. And as I said, most religions also teach to do good works in order to have the balances tip in their favor. As this is so, our good works and self-denial can't be the sole reason that Paul is speaking of. Okay, additionally, of those who do good works and practice self-denial, there are zillions of people who do far more than Christians. Look around you and think of the Christians that you know personally and ask how much they really do for the cause of Christ. Most of us, I'm talking about Christians in general, most of us do nothing. We might do something for ourselves. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But that's self-growth in Christ. It's not reaching out in any way, shape, or form. But there are people that are atheists. There are people that are uh, whatever, agnostics. Bill Gates, I don't know what he is, but he's not a Christian. He's given away billions of dollars in AIDS research, right? You got foundations started by people all over the world. They've made a name for themselves and they've done great things, okay? So if you're comparing yourself on works, we're way behind the ball. I'm telling you, Christians are way behind the ball. They're Buddhist monks, Hindu priests, Islamic imams, Jewish rabbis, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the like. All of them do stuff for their false gods or false perceptions about the true God. Islam even teaches that getting martyred in the cause of jihad is a one-way guarantee to heaven. All of these people are to be pitied for their misguided allegiances to false gods and or false worship. And so what is it about Paul's statement that makes this ring true? Because he says, if our hope is in Christ in this life only, we're to be the most pitiable. How can that be true if these people are also to be pitied? The answer is first to understand the grammar of the Greek. The word only comes at the end of the clause in the structure of the Greek. If in the life this, in Christ having hope, we are only. The only then is emphatic. If Christ isn't risen, then we are putting our hope only in Christ for this life. We have no hope of heaven like all the others have, even though they are wrong about their hope. We are hoping in something which ends in this life. Further, our good deeds are based on forgiveness of sins. They are not in hopes of forgiveness of sins. 
It is the great distinction between Christianity and all other religions. And so logically, if we are out doing good stuff when we have already been forgiven, but with no hope of heaven because Christ isn't risen, then truly we are of all men the most pitiable. Without some reason for the good deeds, why do them? As Paul says later in verse 33, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this is all there is, then the doing of good deeds after forgiveness is about as stupid as making football bats. And that's kind of the point I was trying to give that guy who was so illogical in his presentation of why salvation isn't eternal. Without ever submitting a single verse to support it, which if he did, it would have been out of context. But he's got everything backwards, just like a person making football bats. You are doing something that has no final purpose. Why be a faithful spouse? Why tell the truth? Why be honest in business dealings? Why do anything moral and proper? If you are forgiven in advance, then take advantage of it. If there are no further consequences, dive into sin and immerse yourself in it. You might as well. Live for today. There ain't no tomorrow. Okay? I'll, I'll go back because of some of the appalled faces when I said the word dolt about that guy. Paul uses the term foolish. Peter uses it. Jesus, I believe, uses it. It's the word moros. Anybody hear the... Uh, yeah, moron. I mean, what's worse, a moron or a dolt? Okay? The Bible's very clear about people that are fools or that are foolish or that, in the case of uh, Proverbs 30, an idiot. I'm the stupidest of all men. So, you know, we can use terms as long as we don't use them as pejoratives. And I wasn't. I was using it as descriptive. That's what he is. Anyway, life application. We have a sure hope in heaven because of the work of Christ. All of the work of Christ, including the resurrection. We are not to be pitied. We are to be regarded with burning jealousy, which should drive men to Christ for the same sure hope that each of us possesses. Demonstrate your faith so that others will see it and desire it as well. I was back there cleaning the bathrooms a couple hours ago, and I was thinking exactly this to myself. I didn't know I was going to read that tonight, but I was thinking that, you know, somebody wants to witness to somebody at their work because somebody asked me one time, what do I do about work? And I said, you know what, you don't want to get into talking to people about Jesus when they are working because you're robbing their boss of time. Now, if they're taking a break or if the boss says, yeah, go ahead, who cares? But otherwise, you're you're depriving that guy of his rightful employee. Um, consequently, or in the same vein, um, people will work for other people like, you know, go clean houses or, uh, you know, work at a house doing plumbing or work at a house doing... and. They have a right to talk to the owner because the owner is the one that's paying them. And so you, but is that the right thing to do bringing up religion? Okay. Or is it the right thing to do bringing up politics? And the way that you do that is say, you know, I have a hope in Jesus and I want to know if you want to hear about it. And if they say no, stop. That's their house and that's their right to not know about it. But what's probably the best thing to do if you're a repeat goer to that place is to just live like you are a Christian. Act as if you're a Christian. And when something happens, you say, you don't need to say you're a Christian. You just say, praise the Lord. I had the most wonderful thing happen on the way over here. Or God blessed me today. And you use terms like that. They will catch on that you're a happy person and that you have a hope. And when they have a bad day, which they are going to have because we all do, they're going to say, why are you always so happy? Why is it that I never see you depressed? And when that happens, then you can say, because I have a hope that transcends this world. And that may be the best way of all. It's as you've said many times, and people take offense at it, and I've never understood it, but go ahead and say it because um, I, I, 
uh, you know, um, uh, give the gospel often and when no, necessary, use words. use words. And some people take offense at that, like it's something that you shouldn't, that's excusing yourself from talking about Jesus. That's not excusing yourself. You're living your life in a way that people can see. And there are times when it is not appropriate to enter into a gospel conversation. If somebody's being paid, you don't rob them of their time. If they don't want to hear about it, you don't talk about it because all you're going to do is move them. For, that's right. Push them away. You're not going to bring them closer. There are times to talk about Jesus and there are times to leave a track. There are times to simply be a happy person that is always, you know, content and saying positive things. And people walk up to me at 7-Eleven after seeing me for a month. They say, no, you're always happy. What's up? And I say, because I don't wear shoes or something like that. And then they'll say, ha ha. And I'll say, actually, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. And then, then they want to talk, right? But there you go. Okay, um, fifteen twenty. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first <sighs> fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, you know we talked about hyper dispensationalism here one time. We stopped the Bible study, and I did a, a talk on that just just to get it out of the way because I needed to do it at some point. And this verse is one of the verses that proves that hyper dispensationalism is wrong. There are eight others in the New Testament. There are seven others. There are eight feasts of the Lord, starting with the Sabbath, and then you've got the other feasts of the Lord. This is the fulfillment of one of the feasts of the Lord. And hyper-dispensationalists say those are Jewish feasts. They're not Jewish feasts. They have nothing to do with the Jews other than the fact that God selected them to be the people that would observe them to the Lord. They are feasts of the Lord. If you ever come across a thing on the feasts of the Lord, and they say the seven Jewish feasts or the uh, feasts of Israel. Don't even watch it. Don't even watch those videos. You are wasting your time and you're going to get bad theology because they are not Jewish feasts and they are not feasts of Israel. They've never been called that in scripture and they never will be because they are fulfilled in the Lord. Okay. But this is one of the verses right here that if hyper-dispensationalists knew that this was not a feast for the Jews, but it was a feast of the Lord and it's fulfilled in Christ, then they couldn't make the dumb claims that they make. Here we go. Verse 20. After studying the terrifying consequences for believers if Christ isn't raised, Paul now begins a much happier thought with the resounding word, but. In contrast to the hopelessness of his previous words, there is the absolute assurance and promise that Christ is risen from the dead. The many witnesses, the truth of the apostles preaching, the reality of changed hearts and lives, they are all a testimony to the surety of the believer's hope in this life and in the promised wonders of the time to come. And in what is a response to the previous notion of verse 12, which said that some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead, he shows that this was more than a single occurrence, but one which will include all believers, all believers because of him. Yes, Christ is risen from the dead, but even more, he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Who are those who have fallen asleep? Believers who are. That's right. Is that limited to Paul's time? These words still stand true today. Every single Christian that has died since. Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Every Christian since then is included in these words. He is has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Every believer in Christ for the past 2,000 years is included in that statement right there. None of us here are included in that statement. 
Nobody's not one of us. Die. Well, that's right. There's there's no surety of staying alive forever. There is complete positive surety that you are going to die. But for us right now, this does not apply because we're alive. And Paul is speaking about those who have fallen asleep. They have died. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So it doesn't apply to us. Christ's work does and what he did does, but the precept doesn't. Everybody see that? We will be under a different category. It's called the anybody. Sorry. It's called the begins with an R, ends with apture. Anybody? Rapture. Yes, the rapture. We, if we are alive, if we are alive when Christ comes, then we will be taken out of here. Okay. Other than that, all believers that have died will be taken out because of the first fruits. Here we go. So he shows because of saying that that he was the first. Um, where was I? Uh, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This word first fruits is the Old Testament symbolism found in Leviticus 23, the passage where the feasts of the Lord, thank you, they're not Jewish feasts and they are not feasts of Israel. The feasts of the Lord are detailed. Each of these feasts points to the work of Christ and their fulfillment is in him. There are eight feasts noted in Leviticus 23. Everybody look at me so I don't want to see you looking at your notes. Can anybody name all eight feasts? Can anybody? Because if you can, I'll give you a Maserati. Okay, we'll have to go through them. The first is Sabbath. It's the Sabbath, okay? It's right there at the beginning. And then after that, people say, well, that's not a feast of the Lord because then it says these are the feasts of the Lord. It says the feast of the Lord, the Sabbath will be, and then it says the feast of the Lord. What he's doing is he's dividing them between weekly and annual, okay? Weekly and annual. The weekly was fulfilled in Christ. And that's why we don't observe a Sabbath. It's because Christ is the fulfillment of That's why we don't observe the Passover. It's because Christ is the fulfillment of Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. Okay? That's why we don't observe those feasts. It's not because we're hyper-dispensationalists and say they belong to Israel. It's because Christ has fulfilled them. Okay? The first was the Sabbath. It is a weekly festival. And there are other Fat, uh, Sabbaths, which are fasts, etc., that we've gone through in all of Leviticus and Numbers. They're all done. If you want to know them, go back and watch all those sermons. Or you can email me and I'll give you the specific sermons that you can watch to do that, to understand what the Sabbath was, why it was, and how it is fulfilled. Can anybody tell me the verse where it specifically says that the Sabbath is over? Actually, there's two of them I can think of. That's right. Hebrews 4, 3. Now we who believe do enter that rest. And what had he been talking about for the entire time? The Sabbath, entering God's Sabbath rest. And then another one is Colossians 2, 16 and 17, where it says these were shadows. The reality is found in Christ. He says, why are you observing feasts and um, Sabbaths and, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Go read the verses, 2, 16. Let's read it right now. That way I won't have you confused. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, um, so let no one judge you in food, that's the dietary laws of Israel, or drink, same thing, or regarding a festival, that's these feasts of the Lord that we're going to talk about in just a second, or a new moon, that's the new moon festival which comes on the first day of every month of the year, which we just did a couple weeks ago in our sermons, or Sabbaths. He uses the plural because there are 52 of them in the year, plus a couple special Sabbaths. Those are the Sabbaths, okay? They're fulfilled, okay? So we have the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ. Passover. We've already done that. I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, it's No, it's, uh, yes, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, that's fulfilled. The next one is unleavened bread comes immediately after the Sabbath. It's a seven-day feast. That's where Paul says, um, let us keep the feast, not with the unleavened bread of wickedness and insincerity. I'm sorry, the leavened bread, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Okay, so that one is fulfilled. Okay, and at times Passover and unleavened bread are combined in terminology. Like Luke will say the feast, which is called Passover, when it's actually two separate feasts, Passover and unleavened bread. And I explained that about three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago in a sermon, that there's no error when Luke does that. And the reason why is because when we talk about the Christmas holiday, how many holidays are there actually during the Christmas holiday? I'll give you a hint. You've got Christmas and New Year's, right? So there's two holidays in the Christmas holiday. And we just call them the Christmas holiday, unless you are uh, liberal now and you say we say the winter holidays or whatever. But there are actually two holidays in the Christmas holiday. So we combine the terminology. That's what all Luke is doing. He's saying that the Passover, which is unleavened bread or whatever, okay? So there's no error there, okay? Those are fulfilled in Christ. And we, unleavened bread, that's what we're talking about. Let us keep the feast, okay? The next one is the one we're looking at right now. First fruits. That is Christ coming out of the grave. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He had fallen asleep. He was raised, okay? And then you have the Feast of Weeks, which is called Shavuot, okay? Anybody know what that's called in Greek? Sure you do. Pentecost, okay? It's 50 days later, right? You've got Pentecost, all right? And that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people. Once again, fulfilled in Christ, okay? And then you have the next one, which is in the fall. It does not mean that it's in Christ's second coming that this is going to be fulfilled. It's a fall feast because it's an annual feast of the Lord, which is already fulfilled in Christ, and that is called trumpets. Hello, can we help you, ma'am? Oh, yes, yes, you can, she said. Okay, so trumpets is the first day of the seventh month of the redemptive calendar year, okay? And that is actually picturing the birth of Jesus Christ, who was born on the first day of the seventh month of the redemptive calendar year. Feast fulfilled, and then you have atonement, which obviously is fulfilled. Christ is our, as Paul says and John says, our propitiation. The word there in Greek is hilasterion. Hilasterion is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is in the Hebrew called the mercy seat, the kaporet, the mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat. He is the place of atonement. Feast fulfilled. Anybody that can't see that is as blind as a bat. They say, oh, well, that's when Israel's going to have their sins atoned for. Israel's sins were atoned for 2,000 years ago. They're just late in catching up. They've missed the ball. That has nothing to do with the future fulfillment in Christ. Israel's sins and all of the sins of the world were atoned for on the cross of Calvary. He is the place of propitiation. He is the hilasterion. He is the mercy seat. Okay, so there you go. And the last one is tabernacles. That is Christ dwelling among us, tabernacling among us, and then we are still in our temporary tents, our tabernacles. We are living this life First day of the feast is the day we come to the Lord. The last day of the feast is when we leave this tabernacle, okay? All of the feasts are fulfilled. If you can't understand that, go back and watch those sermons. It is very clear. There is no future fulfillment of the feast of the Lord. We are in the feast of first fruits right now. Fulfilled hyper-dispensationalism is proven. R-O-N-G. Okay. Any Each of these things, I, I'm telling anti-Semitic. That's what it is. It's just another form of anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, Christians believe it even if they love Israel. And they're stuck in this misunderstanding about the purpose of Israel now. Because they seem to love Israel, they love the Jewish people, but they don't understand why is this going on. So there's a conflict in their theology. Personal 
corporate. Personal and corporate salvation. That is right. Okay. Each of those feasts that I just read you has been fulfilled in its work. For example, and I've already said this, but I'll say it again. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul showed that Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. His cross for our redemption was the fulfillment of the Passover. In that same verse, he also said, therefore purge out the old leaven. I wish I had just looked at my notes and I could have done it without misquoting it, that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. That means if we are unleavened, perfect case for eternal salvation. If we are purified by Christ and we are unleavened, that means sinless, and we are not under law, then we cannot lose our salvation because, because the wages of sin is death. If in fact Christ did not cover us with his covering, then we would lose our salvation. But because we are unleavened, we can't lose our salvation. God is not imputing men's sins to them. Or as the NIV puts it, God is not counting men's sins against them. If you've believed in Jesus, you're saved. You are not going to become unsaved. And that does not give you the right to go out and smoke pot and do all the things you want. That is a category mistake. That is an error in thinking by somebody that wants to appear more holy than you. Because you believe that you can't lose your salvation. You know it's true because that's what the Bible teaches. But he wants to tell you that he's better than you because you are cherry picking at the Bible and saying things that actually aren't true. When in fact, that's all the Bible teaches is eternal salvation. To say anything otherwise is, comes down to two things. One, it comes down to the fact that you are the determiner of your salvation, not God. Because if you can lose your salvation at any time from the moment that you became a Christian, it is you who are keeping yourself saved. And the second is that the cross actually means nothing. He didn't finish the work and you have to finish it for him. Thanks, Jesus, but I can do better. So that's a ridiculous slap in the face. Control. Control. Yeah, it's controlled by pastors and it's it's a, a sad place to be. So, uh, therefore, purge out the old leaven. You may be a new lump. His sinless perfection imputed to us is the fulfillment of unleavened bread. Such is the case with all of the feasts of the Lord. I gave you a short little thing on it. If you want to see the whole sermon, go back to Leviticus 23 and watch them all. Okay, first fruits is a picture of the resurrection. Okay, when he took the sheaf before the Lord, they kind of did the shaking motion. It's a picture of the vibrating vibration, the, the life animating back into Christ and him becoming alive, right? He's coming alive and he came alive, okay? Everything he did down there was a picture of what Christ would do for us, okay? He was reanimated. All right, so um, it is described in Leviticus 23, 10 through, let's just read it. Leviticus 23, 10 through 14. Okay, you have to watch the sermon. It's a whole hour-long sermon just to understand what we're going to read here, but Leviticus 23, uh, 10 through 14. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, there's going to be a harvest which is reaped. Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave, there it is, the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish, an innocent lamb, no blemish, perfect, just like Christ, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord. All of the symbolism points to Christ for a sweet aroma, as Paul says. Christ is a sweet aroma, an offering made to God, and its drink offering shall be of one Wine one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever. 
throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Okay? So there you go. That is the Feast of First Fruits. Go watch the sermon. You'll see exactly how it's fulfilled in Christ, as are all eight of the Feasts of the Lord. The sheaf of the first fruits was a representation of all of the harvest to come. It was offered with the expectation that all of the rest of the harvest would follow to maturity. Another sign of eternal salvation. If Christ came out of the grave and we are a part of that harvest and we are in Christ and the expectation is that the whole harvest is going to go to God, there you go. All right. This was on the day after the Sabbath. Christ was crucified on a Friday. Yes, he was. No, he wasn't crucified on a Thursday or Wednesday. We've done that a million times. He was entombed over the Sabbath and rose early on the first day of the week. As it says, what, 13 times in the New Testament, he was raised on the third day. On the third day. Okay? Everything about the rites and rituals of this feast pointed to the work of the Lord. He, he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Just as he slept the sleep of death, but was raised by the power of God, so we too have the absolute assurance that even if we sleep in Christ, we too will be raised by the same great power of God. How you doing there? As his life is eternal, so we too shall be granted eternal life. Paul's words show us the absolute assurance we have because of Christ. We also. Good stuff there. Life application. Once again, I mean, you can look at these verses and logically think them through, and you will not find anything that contradicts the doctrine of eternal salvation. Christ was raised. He is raised forever. We are in Christ. We will be raised forever. Okay? The Old Testament is only old in, the, in that it finds its fulfillment in Christ. Never stop reading it. Never stop searching it out. Every detail contains hidden gems pointing to him. We mature in our understanding of Christ by reading and understanding the Old Testament as well as the New. You neglect the Old Testament, you are not going to mature in Christ as you should because you wouldn't have understood any of what I just told you if you didn't go back to the Old Testament. Not one word of what we've said in the past 20 or 30 minutes would have made any sense without being explained because Paul writes and he said, well, I don't know what that means, right? If you'd never gone back and understood the Old Testament symbolism, you'd have no idea. And that's not just me, that's people in general that preach from the Old Testament. If they are doing it properly, you will understand the new. Right. And if Paul keeps saying, as the scripture, as scripture says, it's, like, it's, like, it's the only scripture yeah. that existed when he wrote that. So we better go back and find out what it says. 1521. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. I'm so excited reading these verses. Just... Just reading them without even studying what they say. Just the words themselves are marvelous. Paul has, in his ever consistent way, confirmed his words of first Romans five twelve. Let me read you that. All right, Romans nine eight seven six five five twelve says, therefore, just as through one man, who is it? Adam. That's right. One man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, he just confirmed that. He said that before. Now he's saying it again. He explains this further in Romans 3, verse 23. What I just quoted it a few minutes ago. The wages of sin is death. That's right. We. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, 323. I was reading 328. For all have sinned. There it is. And all fall short of the glory of God. That's what I wanted. 323. Okay, and then... Uh, Romans 6.23, which we just cited. I get my 23s mixed up. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Okay, sin came through Adam. The, uh, what did I say in 323? Um, read it again. For all have sinned, sin came in Adam. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. How can he say that? How does, does Paul know every person ever lived on this planet? No. no. It obviously teaches inherited sin. Original sin, inherited sin. All have sinned because our federal head sinned. Okay? We might not like the current president or we might love him. It doesn't make any difference. If he signs a law, we are bound by that law. That's the way it works. He is our federal head. Adam broke God's divine law. He is our federal head. We are in Adam. We are dead. We have sinned. And therefore, the wages of sin is death. Okay? That's the doctrine that Paul is teaching there. That's what he's teaching here. He's very consistent about this. One can see the logical progression of sin's entrance into the world through Adam. Death came into humanity because of sin. Okay? But where did sin come from? Where did sin come from? Think it through. God said what to Adam? The day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. He gave him a law. And so sin came through the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin, Paul writes. Okay? So everybody got that? If God didn't say that to him, then he could have eaten the fruit and nothing would have happened. He, if, it was totally up to God to make that law. He gave the law, and by the law is the knowledge of sin. It doesn't mean he knew what death was. He had no experiential knowledge of death. It doesn't matter. When God says, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, and he ate of that fruit, he died. He didn't die uh, 890 years later, or whatever. Uh, he was 930 years later. He was 930 years old. He didn't die 930 years old. He died the day he ate, ate that fruit. He died spiritually. The connection with God was lost. Hence, they covered themselves with things, demonstrating that, assuredly, okay? He physically died 930 years later, or at 930 years old, but he did not die completely 930 years later. He died completely the moment he was separate from Christ. The physical death was just a natural result of it. It was just the following on of it. We are walking dead before we come to Christ. That's the lesson right there. You want to watch a zombie movie? Just go out in the street and look at the people. That's It's true. I mean, yeah, we're the walking dead, okay? So there you go. We'll go again. One can see the logical progression. Death came into humanity because of sin, and that sin spread to all men because all men are in Adam, and thus all have sinned. Who is, what's your father's name? Jim. Okay, what's your father's name? Yeah. Where did they come from? Another father. Where did they come from? Their father and another father. And that's what the genealogies in Genesis are for and in the book of Chronicles and all, all the way through the Bible. Those genealogies are to demonstrate to you that all people came from a human father. That's why they're there. Okay. They were all born of a human father that stems back to one man, Adam. Okay. So that's the lesson that we're learning right here. Okay. Christ came into that stream of humanity, but he didn't have a human father. Okay, therefore he did not inherit that sin. Humanity is condemned to death because of one sin. One sin. And it was a sin without even having experiential knowledge to understand what it meant. That one sin separated all human beings once and forever from God. Okay, but there is the good news of Jesus Christ to follow up the terrible news of Adam. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
What is implicit here, but explicit elsewhere, is that this man, meaning Christ Jesus, had no sin. sin. That's exactly right. He had no sin because he came up out of the grave. And if the wages of sin are death, then he wouldn't have come up out of the grave. If the resurrection of the dead came through him, but the wages of sin is death, then he must have been sinless in order to resurrect, pictured by those innocent lambs that were sacrificed that we just talked about. Okay, It also means that he had to die because of sin, even if not in sin. Everybody got that? He died, but he didn't die in sin. So he had to have died because of sin, but not in sin. What does that mean? What you've done is heaped up on him. What you have done is heaped up on him. Okay, I'm going to talk on Sunday about appreciation, gratitude. And I would say that ingratitude is one of the greatest sins that we could possibly have in our lives. Ingratitude, especially towards God. I'll talk about that this week because you think of it. When he died, he died because of sin. I don't care what you've done in your life. It can be forgiven and it will be forgiven if you call on Christ. But that's what necessitated Christ's death. And he would have done it if it was just you. The meaning of this is that his death was substitutionary in nature. One here, one here. If he died but had no sin of his own, then, then he must have died because of some other sin. Because the wages of sin is death. How could Christ die if he had no sins unless there was still sin involved? The answer is that he died for our sins, not in his own sin. Uh, God uh, made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that? 1 Corinthians 5.21, I think. He made him, Christ, sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Substitutionary atonement. You are sin I'll put Jesus over here. You are sinful. Jesus is without sin. He gives you the substitution. I am now your sin. You are now the righteousness of God. Did I say that? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Did I say first? I didn't mean to. I meant to say because I know it's 2 Corinthians, but I just wasn't sure of the verse. But thank you. So everybody see that? You cannot lose your salvation because you are the righteousness of God in him. And when he came out of the grave, he didn't come out of the grave with sin. That sin was back there. He had no sin of his own, so he had to come out of the grave. And the sin was left behind. Hence, the law is dead because the law was nailed to the cross. He's the embodiment of it. Everything is completed in Christ. Everything. It's so astonishing that it's hard to get your mind around. Okay. He died for our sins, not in his own sin. In this, then, is a truth that cannot be missed. If he died for our sins, which he did, but had none of his own, then death could not hold him. Acts 2.24. At the same time, death can no longer hold us because the wages of sin is death. But Christ died for our sins. If our sins resulted in the death of another, then our sins can no longer be imputed to us. Eternal salvation is the only possible explanation for what Christ did. Any other thing that you can think of is false because it's the only possible thing that answers the dilemma of man in this world. Without eternal salvation, we have no hope because if you can lose your salvation, you will lose your salvation. But you cannot because Christ died for your sins, past, present, and future. The guilt is pardoned. The stain is removed. 
and the life which is true life has come. Paul dealt with this in Romans, and he will continue to touch on it as he proceeds through the verses ahead. Oh, I'm so excited. Life application. Our sins are forgiven in Christ, all of them. We are completely free from the condemnation of sins committed in the body. However, as I told that guy, we are still responsible for not sinning once we are in Christ. Our future re rewards and losses will be determined by our deeds and by our sins committed from the time we are saved. Yes, we can commit sins, but they are not imputed to us. That's the category mistake that that guy was making. Okay? Let us live in holiness and apart from sin as we await our final redemption. 1522. So yes. Chris is saying that she had uh, at the project. It's so true. It's like, I am saved. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. My salvation is in him. In him. That's right. So, Lord, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask you, why did you lead me in this sin sack? Yeah, well, I know the reasons because we got to tell other people. She's, true. She, she's answering her own question by being in the projects every Saturday. Well, that is true, but still. I mean, we got, we've, got a, we've got a life to live, and we got to live it, and we got to continue until he calls us home. But I ask the same question. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, yeah. Why am I here when I do something so stupid or so, you know, get angry, and I just, oh, man, how can you? How could you have died for me? I mean, it just comes off my head. Oh. oh, okay, 1522. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Ah, isn't that wonderful? Read it again, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now the all has to be qualified, okay? Remember that unlike some preachers which will say every, every means every and all, all means all, they do not, Okay. You got to take them in the context, right. all right? In is a very important well, in word. is an important word there. That's right. Um, Paul's previous words stated, "For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead." Our four now builds upon that. Death came by man, meaning Adam, and so life also comes by man, meaning Jesus. The man whom through death came was Adam. The man whom through life comes is Christ. Adam transgressed God's commandment and plunged humanity into death. This was noted in Genesis 3. But there is more to be understood in this than physical death. I don't even need to read it because I've already explained it. The Lord told Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, which we just talked about, on the day that you eat of this, you shall die. I got ahead of myself, didn't I? Well, that's okay. However, after eating of the fruit, it says that Adam continued to live on until the age of 930 years. Therefore, the death that occurred, what's that? It is incredible. Uh, the death that occurred was spiritual death. How old was the oldest guy that ever lived? Methuselah. Methuselah. How old? 969 years old. What? Yeah, Methuselah. 969. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Anybody want to check that? Well, I'm right, aren't I? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, uh, go to Genesis 5 and it'll be right there. Anyway, I'll keep going while you're looking that up. Therefore, the death that occurred, the point that I was going to make about that is that nobody made it to a thousand years. Right. Okay, why is that important? It's, it's a theological point that God was making. A day, yes, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So all of them died before they were a day old. On the day that you eat of this, you shall die. Everybody got that. It's just, it's just a point that the Bible made. It's not to make some heavy doctrine out of, but... That is why nobody is recorded as living past 
thousand years. Go ahead. You said 969, right? Yes. That's it. Oh, 969. I get a Maserati. Thank you. Okay. So um, the connection between God and man was lost, severe, uh, severed completely. Adam lived in time, and time was moving forward. He could not go back and undo what he had done. After his transgression, he had children, all of whom were born with the same spiritual disconnect from God. This has continued to be inherited by all humans since then. Thus, in Adam, all die. Christ came to repair this spiritual rift, however. Through his work, we are spiritually restored to God. He was born without Adam's sin. As his father was God, or is God, he did not receive Adam's sin nature. After this, the Bible records his life. He lived without sin and he died without sin. The Bible makes a very clear point of recording the life of Jesus to show a couple things. One, he's the fulfillment of the law. He's done everything he needed to do. And two, he didn't do anything wrong when he was doing it. He did it all perfectly. Okay. Therefore, the natural, logical, and only possible possibility was that he would resurrect. Without sin, the spiritual connection to God remained. In this, then, is the truth that our physical death also came as a result of inherited sin. First, our spiritual death, we were born dead. Anybody who tells you otherwise has got their theology wrong. You are born dead, and I'm talking about dead. There's no hope for you. From the moment that you were conceived, you were born dead. I'm talking about from God. You have a physical life, and that's grace from God. He gave it to you. You can have a great time, or you could have a bad life, and that's what we would have gotten anyway. So the things that are good are by grace. He gives us rain. He gives us a wife. He gives us children. He gives us all kinds of things that we can enjoy our lives with, whatever. It's grace. If all we had was bad, we could not impute wrongdoing to God. We could not do it, okay? If the spiritual rebirth doesn't occur before physical death comes, then we will remain spiritually dead, forever separated from the Creator. That's the truth of humanity. That may sound cold, it may sound harsh, but it's not because God stepped into that humanity to get us out of it. He didn't know anybody at any point in history what he did, but he did it out of grace. Yeah. This You just described hell. Complete, oh, yeah. Separation complete from separation from it's God. Not flames, it's no. not that, but you think about that for a little bit. Yeah, complete will... separation from anything that's good. That is hell. Anything that is good in any way, shape, or form. If you can think of something that's bad that's still not terribly bad, it's just really terrible, but there's something good in it. I'm still alive even though my body hurts, and you ain't going to have that. It is going to be all bad. There will be no goodness where you are going apart from God. No goodness at all because he is the source of all goodness. There's no goodness apart from him, and you will be ever separated from him. That's what hell is. Whatever else is added into that by God, that's his choice. Punishment and whatever for people that were exceptionally wicked, knowing that they should have not done those things, whatever. That's his choice. But I'm going to tell you, there is no goodness outside of God. Okay? This must be true. We're forever separated from our creator. This must be true because Paul says that in Christ, all shall be made alive. Many people have called on Christ, and to this day, all of them have or will physically die. However, if we are in Christ, and this is speaking only of physical life and death, we would never die. You see that? Therefore, this must be speaking first of spiritual life. As Jesus himself said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 
John 11:26. Because all have or will physically die, even since Jesus said this, then he must have first been speaking of the spiritual state of the person. Once this has been corrected, the inevitable outcropping of it is a physical resurrection. If we are in Christ and now deemed without sin, then death no longer has mastery over us. Therefore, we shall come to eternal physical life at the call of the Lord as well. It's not if, it's not when, it's not maybe. It is going to happen. I should say it's not if or maybe, it's when. When is it going to happen? In this then, Paul's words, in Christ shall be made alive, are speaking of those who are in Christ. Those who remain in Adam cannot be counted in this all. Everybody got that? The all is only as Jim noted, the word in. You are in Christ. That's only those who this is dealing with. Okay? All, it is dealing with rebirth, not continued death. Those in Adam will be raised for judgment and condemnation. All of this is explained elsewhere in the Bible. I'm going to read that one more time, this sentence back here. Those who remain in Adam cannot be counted in this all. Okay? It is dealing with rebirth. Rebirth, not continued death. Okay? Continued death means that we were born dead and we will continue dead for all eternity. Just want you to get that picture there. Okay. Life application. One is either in Adam with their father who is the, de the devil, right? Yeah. Satan, the devil. He is their father, whether they like it or not, or they are in Christ with their father as God. Those are the only two possibilities. 1 John 3, 8 says that as explicitly as anything else in the Bible. I'll take you there just so you know what I'm talking about. 1 John 3, verse 8. Oops, I went too far. It's a little book, Charlie. It's just dinky. Okay, here we go. 1 John 3, 8. He who sins is of the devil. Well, guess what? All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Everybody got that? If you sin, you are of your father, the devil. If you are in Christ, then you cannot actually sin. You sin, you do wrong, but it is not imputed to you. Because if it was, you would be of your father, the devil. Got that? But Christ has covered you from that. Once again, the illogic of what that guy was trying to say, it's shown forth. Go ahead. John 8, about 48, says you are of your father, the devil, and they was I don't know. 840. Go ahead and pull it up there. I'm going to continue with my life application while you are. Uh, 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 it's already 655 or 555. Unbelievable. Hang on here. Um, 848. Jesus answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The Jews answered him, not Jesus. And he said, he said, I do not have a demon, but I, I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Truly, I say to you, oh, it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> Your father's the devil. Your father is the devil. Yeah, yeah. that's what yeah. Jesus is saying. If you find it, go ahead and... I'll get it. Yeah, okay. I know what you're referring to. He says, you are your father, the devil. Wasn't he right. talking to the Pharisees? Yes, he was talking to the Pharisees. Yeah. 100%, that's correct. If you find it, just let me know. Life application, if you were a part of Christ's harvest, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, one is either in Adam with the devil, with the, their father is the devil, or in Christ with their father is God. These are the only two possibilities for humanity, so choose wisely. Simple, choose Christ. Simple test. 
That's it. It's a pop quiz. Yeah, it's not a difficult thing. You either choose Christ or don't choose Christ. That's it. You got it? It's 44. John 644. Go ahead and read it. 844. 844. Read it real loud. You are of your father, the devil. There you go. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do what his desires are. That's right, because he's the liar and the father of it. So there you go. Okay. Verse 1523. But each in his own term, Christ the first fruits then when he comes those who belong to him okay i'm going to read it because this one's a little different um, but each one in his own order christ the first fruits afterward those who are christ's at his coming so it's just structured a little differently but there you go okay in this verse paul speaks of order concerning resurrection not specifically timing the timing of the future events is dealt with elsewhere and must be inferred from a careful reading of the bible Concerning order, however, specific detail is revealed in this verse. He just noted that as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. He follows this with, but each one in his own order. This order then explains more fully the concept of in Christ from the preceding verse. The word for order is used only here in the New Testament, and it indicates a band or a troop. The stalk of grain at the harvest of the first fruits was emblematic of the entire harvest. Christ was raised, and those who are in him will be raised on the same, in the same manner and with the same eternal likeness. Okay, it's a band. There's an order. Christ the first, and then all the others. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 is where it tells us that we will be in the likeness of Christ. Okay, I'm not going to take you there because it's in this chapter, and we'll get to it in a couple days. This is the order then, as Vincent's word studies notes concerning this. He says, the reference is not to time or merit, but simply to the fact that each occupies his own place in the economy of resurrection, which is one great process in several acts. Band after band rises, first Christ, then Christians. The same idea appears in the first fruits and the harvest. Christ is raised. There's a harvest. If you are a Christian, you will be raised. Once again, there's no doubt about it. It is eternal salvation. He is not going to take that away from you, even if you screw up very badly. Okay? 1524, Jim is gone, so I'm going to read it. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority all, I'm sorry, all rule and all authority and power. I better read that again. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. There we go. Okay, that is verse 15, 24. Paul is giving a logical order of things to come. Not all of the details included in those things. There is within his words a multitude of events which are not mentioned. What he said in the previous verse spoke of the order of the resurrection first christ and then those who are his there is nothing to discount a rapture a post-tribulation resurrection and other events all occurring in his wording after the resurrection phase will come the end the word is telos it signifies an end event or issue the principal end aim, purpose, or even a tax, which would be considered a final payment on something, thus ending it. So the word telos has to be taken in the context which is intended by the writer. This then is the end of the mediatorial role of Christ. He is currently in this position. He's working between God and man. However, 
there will be a time when there is when this is no longer necessary that time will be when he delivers the kingdom to god when there is no longer the need for a mediator between god and man god will be open and accessible directly at this time when christ's work of redemption and mediation are finished god will receive the kingdom directly rather than through his mediator when this occurs our relationship to god will be close and personal rather than only accessible through Christ. All who are redeemed will in fact be redeemed. God will be the Father, and that we have truly anticipated since the fall of man. In other words, God, it's not speaking of God the Father, it's speaking about God as Father. He will be the Father that we have truly anticipated ever since the fall of man. This term, God the Father, can be taken in one of two ways. The first is speaking of the Father within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second would be the nature of God as the Father. The second is surely the use of Father, which is intended here by Paul. This same concept of God as Father is seen many times in Scripture. One is explicit. It's found in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the uh, last book of the Old Testament, the 39th book of the Bible. So we'll go there really quickly. Malachi chapter 2 and in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? It's speaking of God as Father in that verse. It's not speaking of God the Father. Okay? Paul's continued words will bear out that this is certainly speaking of God as Father of all rather than the person of God the Father in the Trinity. Before we finish this verse, I'd like to say that today is Burke's birthday. And so we're going to stop and we're going to say, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Here's your birth cake. Birthday cake. Happy birthday to you. We got him. We got him three birthday cakes. One has got cheese on it. One has got pepperoni and one has got pepperoni and sausage. So you have three birthday cakes. He's been looking at me bad all day because I didn't wish him happy birthday on Facebook. And I didn't say anything to him when he came in. So he's been, he's been giving me this, this, this grumpy face all day. And here he got three birthday cakes from us. Okay, we're going to have to go back and finish this verse. And then we are done for the day. But logically, even from this verse, we can deduce. I was just speaking about the Trinity. We can deduce that this is. I'm going to take you back to the beginning of the paragraph. Because I stopped and everybody's forgot what I was talking about. Paul's continued words will bear out that this is speaking of God as Father of all, then the person of God the Father within the Trinity. But logically, even from this verse, we can deduce this to be true. If there is no need for a mediator, then we will have access to Father God referred to, such as in Malachi. He will truly be our eternal Father. That figure which we will anticipate will be in the fullest sense. But such is not the case at this time, because there are still people who are being redeemed, who are not yet God's children, but who will be at some future point, and thus there is still the need for Christ's ongoing mediatorial work. When that work is done, a new order of things will take form. However, this must wait until the time when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Until then, we as saved believers are God's adopted children, but we are still awaiting the fullness of what that means. The last page of the Bible gives us a glimpse of that. 
Take a gander at it today. Go read the last page of the Bible and revel in what lies ahead as we await the completion of Christ's marvelous work. Actually, I'd like you to go read Revelation 21 and 22 when you get home today. All right, life application and we are done. It's time for birthday party. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God, our creator, is a father to all who are saved by the blood of Christ. Keep getting the word out while you can. The day is coming when those who are not adopted as his children will be banished from his presence forever. Now is the time to go about our business telling of the great work of Christ to redeem fallen man. Which actually explains the sin sack thing. The sin sack thing. Yes, keep on going. Keep on going. Let me turn this off. We'll back it up for the folks online. Say goodbye. And we're going to go to break. All right.